Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined as usual by our chief TV critic and my partner in crime, Mr. Daniel Feinberg. Happy New Year, Dan. Happy New Year, Leslie, and oh, what a new year it was. Yeah, we're saying that now, but uh, we should note that this episode was recorded before Christmas because, uh, well, we didn't want to work over the break, so there's that. So (laughs) if this episode feels a little bit different, it's because we're going to skip the headlines segment and... If we miss any big news, well, we'll get to it January 10th when we'll be coming to you from the TV Critics Press Tour in Pasadena. Better than us being wildly, hilariously out of date. Just pretend this is not the most timely episode of TV's Top 5. But we do have a lot of fun segments that will preview 2020 and what to expect on TV and a great showrunner spotlight interview. And we will also look ahead to the Golden Globes, which as of the time that we're recording this, we are assuming will still be happening. (laughs) I mean, anything could happen. Yes. Well, let's just dive right into our five topics. What do you say, Dan? Bring it on, Leslie. To start our 2020 preview, let's take a look at the most anticipated scripted series coming this year. Number one. You know, every year I compiled this list working with networks and streamers about which of the scores of shows that they've ordered that will actually launch in 2020. And yes, I have been burned before. I'm looking at you, Snowpiercer. So looking at the high profile things that are coming next year, For me, there is no more highly anticipated show than Why the Last Man over on FX. Yeah, you just go and believe we're going to see Why the Last Man over on FX in 2020, Leslie. I mean, I appreciate your high degree of optimism and enthusiasm. And look, if someone were to absolutely guarantee me that that show was going to premiere this year and maybe, for example, show me a pilot, show me some footage, anything at all, uh, show me the monkey. um, (laughs) Show me the monkey. Oh, my God. Is this a Jerry Maguire reference? I believe it is kind of a Jerry Maguire reference, but also show me the monkey. Uh, Yeah, I I am very much of the opinion that that show will exist when it exists. But often things do happen. Like I didn't believe that the Deadwood movie was ever going to happen. And it happened last year. I didn't believe that Twin Peaks The Return was ever going to happen, but it happened two years ago. Or that Gilmore Girls would ever come back. And, well, it happened. Exactly. Things do have a tendency to happen that we don't believe on TV. So, yeah, bring on Why the Last Man. I am here for it. I'm also skeptical it will ever exist. And you're skeptical because, look, this project first landed at FX in 2015. It's kind of been cursed behind the scenes. New Line tried to make it into a film for a long time. There was a right struggle before creator Brian K. Vaughn was able to get it back. Once it landed at FX, they hired some showrunners. They did did some casting. And then, of course, the showrunners didn't have their vision, didn't match what FX was looking for. And they left. There was a new showrunner. Her name is Eliza Clark. 
She was installed. You know, they've got a great cast, Barry Keegan and Diane Lane. I'm told it's coming in 2020. But, you know, this is a case of a great property. The comic is probably one of my all time favorites. And it's probably got the backstory behind it. It may be as good as what's on the screen. Have we confirmed whether or not they're going with Marcel permanently as the monkey? Or do is there still a possibility that the monkey could be largely CG? Do we and know what the answer Mar- is? Marcel, by the way, the real name for that capuchin monkey is Katie. Um, <laughs> and Katie is upwards of 35 years old. And yes, is the same capuchin monkey from Friends. And um, Outbreak. And Outbreak, among other things. But... We have no idea yet. Um, I I would guess, given the way our industry is going with the use of animals on screen, that this is becomes a CGI. And Katie maybe you know maybe heading to the sunset years of her career. I thought you were about to talk about how difficult it was for monkeys of a certain age to get no, work in Hollywood, Dan. and how even with cable and streaming, you know, if you're a 35 year old monkey in Hollywood, you just really I'm cannot get how work. Hollywood is slowly retreating from using animals on screen and in exchange for CGI. So okay, we have need to... we remind our <laughs> listeners of what happened with Luck over at HBO. This is very true, and we would like to keep Katie the monkey healthy as long as possible. Seriously, this is not just a segment about how much we're anticipating Why the Last Man. So let's get to something else we're anticipating. I am really curious about impeachment American crime story. That is probably my most anticipated thing of the year. The OJ season was one of the best things on TV. And the Johnny Versace season was rather surprisingly one of the best things on TV after people got over the fact that it wasn't meant to be exactly the same in tone. Uh, It has a tremendous cast, starting with Beanie Feldstein as Monica Lewinsky, uh, Annalie Ashford as Paula Jones. Uh, Who was it as Bill Clinton? It was uh, Clive Owen as Bill Clinton. Clive Owen as Bill Clinton, Sarah Paulson as Linda Tripp. Yeah, it's a really good cast. But the problem with this one was when FX announced the pickup of the series, they also shared that it would premiere September 27th, Dan, which, as you know is right in the middle of the presidential election cycle. And that, of course, was an immediate red flag among critics. And this was announced at TCA in a room filled with critics where FX chief John Landgraf said he's he's not worried. And I continue not to feel as if that is going to be the determining factor in anything this election. I mean, no. seriously, if the fact that Donald Trump was officially impeached isn't going to be a determining factor. I really don't think that an FX series watched by a million people a week is really going to sway this election. I'm curious what it looks like. And hey, maybe it will turn out that it's an abomination and besmirches the Clinton name and is used as ammunition or whatever. It could happen. I just don't think it will. But I'm looking forward to finding out. And I also think that it could be delayed from that. So who knows? It's one of the narratives that we will be watching in 2020. What else is coming up, Dan? You know, I do this annual list, you know, and I pick 20 for 2020. And there's a lot of cool stuff on here. Aquafina is Nora from Queens on, on Comedy Central is on the list. One of the big narratives to watch next year, or I should say this year, is a lot of these big Netflix overall deals that they've signed. We're starting to see the first shows coming out. So Bridgerton, which will be Shonda Rhimes' first show from a, for a streaming service, will premiere in 2020. We don't know exactly when, at least as of this recording. But this is a big London shot period soapy drama that is the first show that that Rhymes has made for a streaming platform. Then you've got Hollywood from Ryan Murphy, which is going to be in 2020. That is the first show that Netflix produced for Ryan Murphy. He, of course, had The Politician air in 2019, but that was from his former overall deal home at 20th TV. 
the politician was absolutely a TV show that existed in 2019. I am I'm fairly confident you are correct about that. I am uh, very interested in a couple HBO comedies that are follow-ups to very high-profile shows. So you have Avenue 5, which I don't really understand the title because it's an out of outer space comedy from Armando Iannucci starring Hugh Laurie. I don't know what possible more information I could need than comedy HBO Hugh Laurie Armando Iannucci. So I am totally... On paper, it sounds great, yeah. Yeah, so that is January 19th. And I'm also very interested in Run, which is going to be presented by people as being Phoebe Waller-Bridge's follow-up to uh, Fleabag, but it's really kind of not because it's created by Vicky Jones, but Phoebe Waller-Bridge is going to have a supporting role, but it's really a starring project for Merritt Weaver, who is always awesome. So those are two comedies I am looking forward to. What else you got? Um, well, the first of the Marvel Cinematic Universe TV series spinoffs, Falcon and Winter Soldier, will premiere on Disney Plus next year or this year. I keep doing that. It's going to be doing that for a while, I think. Um, that's going to be a big swing for that platform. Elsewhere at Disney Plus, Lizzie McGuire. Look, you know, Disney Plus already has a hold on the fanboy audience, you know, thanks to The Mandalorian. And of course, all the Marvel fans will flock once those originals start unspooling. But Lizzie McGuire has an opportunity to do what the Marvel and Star Wars shows doesn't, which is bring in more women and families to that platform. Is Lizzie McGuire the new Baby Yoda? Oh, we will have to wait and find out. Or is Lizzie McGuire capable of filling the Baby Yoda-sized hole in our hearts after the end of The Mandalorian? It's here as a disclaimer that we should warn you that if you have a Baby Yoda-sized hole in your heart, you should consult a physician immediately. It's probably congenital. Or pre-order one of your Baby Yoda plush toys. You just jam it into your chest? Just jam it right in there, God, that's dark. Um, Let's see. (laughs) If you've been missing having Reese Witherspoon on your TV in recent days since the end of The Morning Show or the end of Big Little Lies, she's got another new show coming, this one on Hulu. My goodness, Reese Witherspoon is all over the TV. This one also has Kerry Washington, so I am definitely curious about that one, even if the surprise slash pleasure of seeing Reese Witherspoon on my TV is is not quite what it once was. She's still Reese Witherspoon, and she's still really good. Yeah, elsewhere at Hulu, I'm really excited for this one, even though we don't know hardly a lick about it, but Love Beth, which is the half-hour scripted comedy created by and starring Amy Schumer in her first role since her Comedy Central show took off. She's going to create, write, direct, and exec produce and star in the 10-episode scripted comedy. We have not a clue what the plot details are, but you had me at Amy Schumer scripted comedy created and written by her. Plus, given Hulu's great comedy track record, you know, from 2019 with Pen15, or as you call it, Dan? Hulu's Penis. Shrill and Rami. I'm here for that. The other things that I'm really looking forward to is seeing how FX on Hulu is going to work. You know, there's a, a number four shows that are coming to, to Hulu that will fall under the FX on Hulu umbrella. One of them is Mrs. America. Look, I was a women's studies minor in college. I know you're all stunned to hear that one, but this is a, a really, really impressive cast. Kate Blanchett stars. Just It's just loaded. Uzo Aduba. Marco Rose Martindale Byrne. as Bella Abzug. Melanie Linsky, James Marston, Sarah Paulson, John Slattery, Tracy Ullman. It sounds like a winner. It is definitely an amazing cast. Uh, Speaking of having us at a certain pitch, we've also mentioned in the past a little show called Hunters on Amazon, better known as the show where Al Pacino says mitzvah. I have already expressed on a previous podcast my anticipation for that, and I continue to be very excited for Al Pacino saying mitzvah on a weekly basis. 
in other streaming services, you know, we mentioned Disney Plus has a couple of big swings, but we're also going to have two more platforms joining the fray as of the spring. Peacock and HBO Max are premiering. Both will launch with originals, I'm told. Saved by the Bell. The reboot will allegedly be among the first scripted shows out on Peacock. And that's, of course, the new take from Tracy Wigfield with Mario Lopez and Elizabeth Berkley returning over on HBO Max. They have an anthology from Paul Feig starring Anna Kendrick called Love Life. That that sounds fun. But perhaps the thing that I'm really excited for is a show called Space Force that is coming to Netflix in 2020. This is perhaps the most anticipated new comedy of the year. Steve Carell stars and reteams with the office creator Greg Daniels in the half hour inspired by President Trump's idea for a space force as the sixth branch of the military. I mean, Steve Carell reteaming with the office creator. They both co-created the show. The supporting cast looks incredible. Ben Schwartz, who is hilarious as, as John Ralphio and one of my favorite comedians. John Malkovich is co-starring in this. And then you add in the fact that Greg Daniels also has another show coming to Amazon in 2020. It's going to be a big year for him. In conclusion, lots of TV. We will discuss it all anon. Number two. Our next topic Let's look forward at some of the bigger narratives that we're going to be keeping an eye on in 2020. And yes, some of these are the same narratives we were keeping an eye on in 2019. For example, up first, what? You thought the streaming wars were over? No, no, (laughs) no, no, no. Leslie, what are you looking forward to seeing happen in the streaming wars this year? Well, I'm definitely anticipating both Peacock, the NBC Universal streaming service, and HBO Max, the one from Warner Media, both launching in the spring, in April and May, respectively, at least according to what we know now. <laughs> of course, that could change. You know, the Peacock Investor Day is set for January 16th, so we'll have many more details, I presume, on that in the coming weeks. I anticipate that they'll have a launch date and a strategy. And, you know, look, the rumors right now is that is that the platform will be ad-supported and free to everyone. So we'll have a greater idea about what that's going to look like. Look, we already know the HBO Max, what the strategy there is. That's just waiting a launch date. You know, whatever is going on with Quibi, which we shall remind our, our dear listeners that Quibi actually stands for Quick Bites. And therefore should be Quibi. Um, So allegedly Quibi will launch in 2020 following the mergers and acquisitions. There's going to be a lot more of that. I'm sure in 2020 as all of these legacy companies look to bulk up and compete in the streaming era. Any company that's got a deep library of IP and and programming and inventory expect them to be walking around 2020 with a giant bullseye on their back. One of the larger narratives is what's going to happen with a lot of these cable networks because, you know, look, linear viewership is dwindling and their parent companies, all of that attention is largely on streaming. So, you know, I wrote about, you know, Van Helsing, a show called Van Helsing that has aired for four seasons and is renewed for a fifth and final one in 2020. That's been on at Sci-Fi, but when you look at Sci-Fi's roster of scripted originals, it's Van Helsing, a, a fellow acquisition in Winona Earp. And then The Magicians, and then they're launching a new show, Resident Alien, in 2020. That's four scripted shows on sci-fi. When was the last time sci-fi had as few as four scripted originals? And the same is true for a lot of these other niche cable networks and even the bigger ones. You know, Mr. Robot is ending at USA Network. What is the future of that brand after that, that show ends? And that's one of their flagships. And so what becomes of these cable networks in 2020 and how they stay afloat next year? That is a big, big question that I have. 
It's the question that I feel like we've all been having since since John Landgraf announced that peak TV was a thing that existed back, you know, about 150 additional new screen new shows ago. Uh, sort of the question of when things are going to start falling apart. Like, I don't wish failure on anybody, obviously. And I think we've seen it somewhat in the cable space where a lot of people have got into the originals business and then got out, whether it's someone like WGN or a couple other entities that started off thinking they were going to do scripted programming and then back down. And then we saw it in the streaming space, uh, as we've discussed several times before with YouTube, where at one minute they were going to do all sorts of scripted programming and then it ceased to be. I'm curious as to who is going to fail, who is going to retract. I'm curious if there actually is an audience out there for whatever Quibi is, because that seems like something that at least has the potential to be a gigantic failure, or it could turn out that there's an audience for it that we're simply not aware of, and they're, it's going to be like a massive success. Yeah, I mean, they're certainly buying enough content. It feels like we've we've got embargoed news and releases and announcements that from them almost on a daily basis for the last four or five months. It's exhausting. And it's all based on the idea that there's an audience for these things. They've obviously done endless marketing and test marketing and test research and all of that. So they feel like they have an indication that people want the thing they're doing. And if they're right, you know, it'll be fun and great and whatever. If they're wrong, the potential for a face plant is huge. Yeah, they've spent a lot of money on originals. And I don't know that we have an answer to that. Yeah. So the other thing that I'm really eager to see is if a lot of these shows that are ending in 2020 can stick the landing. You know, look, 2019 was a huge year. Game of Thrones, Big Bang Theory, a lot of signature shows are, are, are coming to an end. And it's a really long list of stuff this year. You've got The Good Place and Homeland, Will and Grace for a second time, of course, Arrow, Power, of course, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., which really will wrap Marvel TV's run under Jeff Loeb, and then How to Get Away with Murder and Modern Family, Empire. I mean, these are a lot fresh of fresh off the of, boat. Fresh off the boat, yeah. These are a lot of really, really great shows, Dan. That I'm very curious about. You know, for like with looking with the Good Place and and Will and Grace. Like, what does that mean for NBC's comedy brand? I think that NBC's comedy brand remains fairly decent. They seem happy with, for example, Superstore. Uh, but I don't know if Superstore can really be their only flagship comedy. That... I mean, Brooklyn Nine Nine still, but. Yeah, and Brooklyn Nine-Nine is one of those things where eventually they're just going to announce the last season of that one is coming. I uh, hope that show never ends. I ha that, that show brings me so much joy. I am not in any way rooting for it to end. I, I don't know that, for example, there's anything quite as big as the Game of Thrones departure, the Big Bang yeah. Theory departure, the Veep departure. Orange is the New Black, yeah. But, you know, the end of A Good Place is something that for a small group of fans is going to be a big deal. And I felt like this has been a kind of so-so final season, you know, good by general standards, but I would say down by good play standards. So I will be curious to see where they steer that and how they can end it. Uh, Homeland is a show that at one point was the hottest thing going and, you know, this thing that that everyone tried to emulate. NBC made like 15 different shows that they thought were going to be the next Homeland, not a single one of which made was. it to season two. Yeah. Um, but it's a show that's kind of been out of the conversation and has just generally been off the air now for over a year and a half, I think. And so I, I guess I kind of wonder, is that a show that can get a second life in its last season where people check back in and can it, you know, what would it even mean for a show like that to stick the landing? Because what is what is the landing that that show has been building to? And yet it is a show that at one point was extremely significant and therefore worth 
following up on it. So we'll do that. We'll yeah. we'll, we'll stick around, you know, and same with Modern Family. Yeah, I was just going to ask you about that because, you know, what is that show building towards? I mean, you know, it is so consistent every single week. You know what storylines you're going to get. Like, you know what beats that show is going to hit. And it, it's remained consistent, you know, throughout its entire run. You know, ABC, of course, wants a spinoff. The natural one is right there on the surface. I don't know that they're going to do that. But at the same time, that's a huge, huge, huge show for ABC and, and is going to create a major void, as will Fresh Off the Boat. I think that ABC's comedy lineup, which has been really impressive and somewhat undersung in terms of the sheer volume of really above average family comedies of all varieties they've had. What does that look like? After they cancel a certain number of them, what is the bellwether going to become for ABC without a Modern Family, without a Fresh Off the Boat, without a Speechless that got canceled last season, et cetera, et cetera? So I think it's a I think it's an interesting question whether something like American Housewife or Single Parents, a show that I find myself liking more and more, you know, whether one of those is going to be able to step up, whether for some reason Schooled is going to step forward and actually become more of a standalone thing since uh, Goldberg's is closer to the end than to the beginning. I still think Goldberg's will, will come back for another, enough. I should say no relation on that one, but <laughs> I think Goldberg's will continue on beyond this, this current season. And I love that show. I also think Schooled has been great. You know, season two had some some showrunner issues. And, and once they cleared out, all of that is really back on track creatively. I think both of those shows will be a cornerstone of ABC's comedy brand going forward. I think they'll be there. The question of whether they can actually be a cornerstone, whether ABC needs a bigger hit to keep all of these things going. Blackish obviously continues to go, et cetera. So, and yeah. that's got to be nearing the end of its run, too. Yeah, I think there's I think there's a bunch of shows on ABC that are closer to the end than to the beginning, which does not mean that they're going to be done after four more months, but it means maybe they'll be done after one more season after this one or two more. So all things to keep track of. And heaven knows we'll be following it up. Um, let's see. We haven't even mentioned what's still left in the overall deals marketplace. Give me a couple big things to look forward to. Seth MacFarlane is still out there as we record this episode. I'm very curious where he lands. I think I know where that's going to be, but I also don't want to say too much. But uh, yeah, that'll be very interesting to follow. And you know, look, you know, Chuck Lorre and Dick Wolf's overall deals are up this summer. If either one of them decides to leave Warner Brothers and Universal where they, they have been for decades, that will be a landscape shifter. I am not anticipating either of those things happening. But for the most part, we've seen a lot of the major, major prolific showrunners. They've got deals, you know, at the same time, Shonda's already nearing, I think she's almost three quarters of the way through her deal, even before the first show actually launches. But so expect is, a renewal there. That is crazy. Yeah, I'd be shocked <laughs> if she doesn't renew her Netflix deal because she's got like nine, I think it's nine shows now that are in the works, including an anthology that was just announced a couple of months ago. I think you're going to have to start to see Netflix renew some of those deals that they've signed. And, you know, if Shonda gets, you know, more than the hundred million she signed on for, Originally, I would expect that number to climb. And I, and who knows when? I think that deal is even 2021, maybe. I don't think it's up this year. But uh, but yeah, for the most part, all of the major players have you know been wiped off the board and have new homes. And Lori and, and Wolf will more than likely, I would be stunned if they, they, they didn't renew their overall deals. Well, stay tuned. We will surely be following these stories and many, many more in the weeks and months to come. Number three. 
Up third, the Golden Globes are set for Sunday, January 5th on NBC with host Ricky Gervais. Joining us to preview the show and to help you, of course, fill out your picks for your office pool is THR's awards analyst and awards chatter host, Mr. Scott Feinberg. Welcome back to the show, Scott. Thank you guys for having me back. Well, let's start with Ricky. What can we expect from him hosting this time? I have to say that he is my favorite host of any award show ever. I think that he is so unpredictable and willing to just ruffle anyone's feathers that it makes it a different kind of viewing experience than, you know, it's fun to have your Neil Patrick Harris's and guys who can kind of go out there and sing and dance and stuff. But there is something to be said for just, you know, not treating all of this too seriously and he can be ruthless. And so I am very excited. I think he said it's his, he said this before, but he says now this is going to be his last time doing it. So he's really not going to hold back. And I believe him. He's definitely said that before. I'm just, my own opinion on that is that it takes something away from the sense that he's being ruthless, that he keeps being brought back to it again. You know, like how much is he really hurting anybody's feelings if the people who he's mocking (laughs) are just like, yeah, come back, whatever. Well, it's it's funny though, because I think there is actually division within the Hollywood Foreign Press Association about whether or not to bring him back. I mean, there's a guy who used to be the president there, Philip Burke, who... One time when Ricky hosted came out and did the requisite, you know, we'd like to welcome everyone and the HFPA does this and this throughout the year. And Philip Burke walked off the stage and Ricky Gervais came on and said something like, he left something up here. Can somebody pull him off the toilet and pop his teeth back in or something? And he was so, he was so angry. And normally, you know, you should be able to laugh at yourself, but I know there are a good number of people at the HFPA who are worried that he will offend their guests and maybe even their members. But I, I just love it. I don't mind it. I just feel like, you know, once we establish that he can just get up there and say these are worthless awards that are basically bought and paid for right. mm-hmm. and the people who buy and pay for the awards right. keep bringing him back every year, <laughs> then it kind of just makes me wonder, OK, then why are why are any of us taking? Well, that that is true. <laughs> but at least he's at least he's acknowledging there's some craziness to this, which I know we will discuss in terms of the specific categories. Yeah. Well, before we get to that, I do want to talk about the controversies from the nominations. Of course, you know, the lack of female directors on the film side Mm -hmm. and how white the TV nominees are. What do you expect from that to come up during the show? Well, it's tough when your host is a white guy. So, but I mean, maybe he'll address it. I, I don't think he's especially politically correct. So I don't know if he'll even think that that's, it, it was not, look, the thing on the film side is that the reality is none of the pundits really thought going into this that there were going to be any of the female directing nominees. The best shot was maybe Little Women or The Farewell, and that was not expected. I think the the fact that the TV acting nominees are basically entirely white, aside from Rami Malek and Rami Youssef, the two Ramis, uh, that's a little harder to explain, and, and that includes you know, six categories of five people. So 30, actually there's, there's even Billy, enough, Por- Billy Porter also. For and Billy Porter, correct. So, I mean, they, and there's, there's so six, 12, 18, 24. And so basically you have three non-white acting nominees. It doesn't look great, but again, it comes back to this question that we've all been having to try to decipher over the last few years. Like, is this, you know, the result of some kind of closed mindedness on the part of the voters, or are there just people of color, actors of color not being given the opportunities to do the kinds of work that these guys generally respond to. I think on TV, it's hard to make that argument because there's so much out there on film. I think, you know, there just aren't that many movies that are a part of the award season these days. 
it's it's just a it's a tough question. Yeah, I know you're. I mean, I know you're not making that argument here about TV, but for me, this this is sort of unconscionable with the snubbing of uh, when they see us, which yeah. is oh, big, yeah. and you know the ability to get Jarrell Jerome into an acting field is not hard. He's someone who deserved that nomination. 100%. Someone like someone like Regina King, that is not complicated to get her into a field. Uh, Sandra Oh, she hosted the darn show and I believe even won last year. So it's not like they don't know who she is. This is not hard in this case. They just kind of, to my mind, blew it. It's weird because let's go through the, like last year they gave Golden Globes to Sandra Oh and Regina King. So it's not that they are racist against them, I would think, or don't like them or whatever. I think that what it really boils down to, and, and the when they see us, I just, I think this is honestly more the explanation for that. They are all about being first to say, we are going to crown this as an awards-worthy production or something. And so the fact that Jarrell Jerome won an Emmy and the fact that those other people in their mind are sort of like yesterday's news, it, I, I honestly think it's more about that than overt racism with the HPA because they don't, actually they have a better record than the Academy in some ways in recent years of celebrating diverse talent. I think that they are all yeah, they about... they could have been the first organization to recognize Watchmen and Regina King. That Again. you would think, but uh, yeah, I, I get it. And that one to me is is probably the weirdest because they, they clearly want to mark a show. Other than that one, they've got a lot of first year shows where you've got, for instance, The Morning Show, where they really want to, you know be probably the first to stamp that as an as an awards caliber let's, thing. Let's be honest yeah. with that one. We yeah. know why that show got a Golden Globe nomination. Well, we know, A, they want to be in business with Apple. B, th- how do you stars. not have stars at your show? Right. Um, and so, but I think there honestly is a mentality there where it's like, okay, last year we took care of Sandra Oh and Regina King and whoever, although you could say the same about Rami Malek, I guess, where who also won last year. And it's like, let's use our spots on new people to be grateful to it or feel it so that they feel indebted to us. It's a weird psychology when you're dealing with basically 87 voters who all they do is go to and, wa- and watch this kind of stuff. I don't know. I'm not in any way. Eight, 87 voters yeah. make up, make dis- determine your Golden Globe winners. It's, so it's weird. Yeah. Let it's, that nobody should take second. it that seriously. And also, if you think about who their past winners have been, I mean, in this effort to be first, sometimes they've been prescient, like Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Other times, it's been like Brooklyn Nine-Nine or stuff, which no other awards group has ever really felt was worthy of recognition. So it really varies, and they're a weird group. Yeah. Well, let's go through and pick a couple of winners, shall we, Scott? Let's. Um, So let's start with drama. The nominees are Big Little Lies, The Crown, Killing Eve, Morning Show, and Succession. What show gets your pick? Well, let's work it backwards. I mean, they have loved The Crown in its prior seasons, and Claire Foy's a someone who they've celebrated and, and, you know, it's, they have a lot of European and British members. I, I could see that doing well. I don't think they're going to go back to Killing Eve or Big Little Lies. I think the morning show they may choose to recognize in an acting category, although that could happen. And it's weird. They have this weird thing where like the, this year as well, they barely have any Game of Thrones and they have a limited amount of succession, much less than I would expect ultimately from TV Academy. So I'm not sure they're totally on board for succession, I, I would guess it's probably The Crown or The Morning Show. And how about on the comedy side, where the nominees are Barry, Fleabag, Kaminsky Method, The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, and The Politician? The only rookie there is The Politician, so you've got to look carefully there. Although, i got to be honest, I have a hard time looking at that as a best series 
caliber show. I would laugh so hard. Yeah, it's a little weird. <laughs> Much harder than I ever laughed at the yeah, politician. Yeah, I mean, but they do. They definitely have a long history of supporting Ryan Murphy stuff. You know, Fleabag would obviously be the hip choice. Uh, maybe Barry also. Kaminsky is sort of the B Netflix option here. I don't think that's going to happen. I could see Maisel happening again. They, again, go for Amazon stuff quite a bit, and that's a show that this could be a third in a row for Rachel Brosnahan. And so I, I think that it's probably Maisel or the politician, but just largely because they don't crown things that other people have already done. What about the acting category, Scott? There's always one big surprise winner at the Globes. If you had a long shot pick in the acting categories, what you got? I could see something happening with the act where Joey King is up against two people from Unbelievable, Caitlin Deaver and Merritt Weaver, who I could see maybe canceling each other out. I think Helen Mirren, that's a show people are, or a limited series rather, that I don't see them going for that. They're not going to repeat on Michelle Williams, I don't think. So something weird could happen there in the category of actress in a miniseries or TV movie. The rest of them, I, I think there's there's one or two that could happen in any of them. I don't see anything that crazy happening with, you know, like, I, again, I do think Maisel has a great shot of repeating for actress in a in a musical or comedy for, for Brosnahan. I, it, again, we're talking about 87 people who sometimes if they thought you didn't stay for the photo line long enough after your press conference fuck you. So that's, it's very hard to deal with these guys. Does that imply that this might be a more wide open year than usual and that you're more excited to see what the results might be? <laughs> you're silenced. Not that. really. <laughs> oh man. See, the podcasting yeah. medium is simply not a yeah. good way to, uh, to express Scott's enthusiasm. Look at enthusiasm. Yes, 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 yes. Um, what would you be rooting for the most here? I feel like I would like to see Succession win a couple things. I would like to, because as you say, they want to be first. Yeah. And while Succession did get a writing win from the yeah. Emmys, which was a very pleasant surprise, yeah. this is the chance to say, okay, the, the torch has been passed from Game of Thrones, which we didn't even nominate. Right. So here, Succession is where it's at. I would kind of love to see that. I yeah. think that would be and, fun. And maybe, I mean, I think Brian Cox has a better shot than even the show necessarily. He's up against Kit Harrington, who again, they're clearly not that big on Game of Thrones since he's the the sole acting nominee from the show. Rami Malik, they've given it to him before, but for season one, it's now the final season. The Crown, maybe, but I think that's more about the the Queen than than the Prince Philip. And Billy Porter was the T V Academy's guy. So I mean, I kind of think Brian Cox has a good shot. Yeah, well, the one thing that I want to want to see is Billy Porter. I, I love Pose, even though season two wasn't as strong as the first, but yeah. Billy Porter remains my favorite, one of my favorite parts of that show. And I and just seeing him up there, and you know, he's yet to give a bad speech. He's always uh, always interesting, and he would be the alternative there, I think. And uh, my only my only bummer is that MJ Rodriguez didn't get nominated because I I absolutely love her on on Pose. It was a it was a strong season for the show, and I guess. Uh, if you look at who their options are for actress in a drama, well, I guess, yeah, for actress in a drama, I guess MJ would have been lead or supporting. I don't remember. I she guess would have been lead. And, lead. I, and I think that that category is stacked. We stacked. already talked about yeah. how they left Sandra O oh and Regina King out of that right. category. And that's a, I mean, the, the lineup they have is a powerful Power. lineup. Absolutely. Yeah, Jennifer Aniston, Olivia Coleman, Jodie Comer, Nicole Kidman, and Reese Witherspoon. Yeah, that's pretty that's insane. And you know what? Honestly, uh, I wouldn't be shocked if any... One of them, one, I think it's probably going to be hard for one of the morning show ladies to beat the other, just 
you know, it's there's not that market of difference. So if that doesn't happen, then we're looking again, Coleman, Comer, Kidman. And I think, you know, in the same way they like to, you know, sort of crown with Claire Foy, I could see them really doing it again with Olivia Coleman, yeah, who we same. know they like. And she won just last year for the favorite there. They really started her on her way to the Oscar with that. So I'm kind of thinking it's going to be Olivia Coleman. Well, we are looking forward to seeing how things shake out at the Golden Globes, which will be held, as you know, on January 5th, 2020 at the Beverly Hilton. Scott Feinberg, thank you as ever for joining us. Thank you, fellow Feinberg and Goldberg. Thanks, Scott. <laughs> okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Number four. Up next, it's time for another showrunner spotlight segment. Joining us this week is Amy Lippman of Freeform's Party of Five. The series, which features an immigration twist on the original Fox hit, was created by Lippman and Chris Kaiser, with the former spearheading the revival. In addition to both Party of Five shows, Lippman's credits include such shows as Sisters and Showtime's Masters of Sex. Welcome, Amy. Hey, you guys. Hey, Amy. Well, let's start from the very beginning. What inspired this new and very timely take on Party of Five. I mean, the show has been, obviously it was a huge hit for Fox when it aired originally, but had you been approached over the years about rebooting it and why now? Uh, we have been approached to reboot it over the years. And I think, you know, Chris and I, every few years would think about it. And I think our thinking was, why? I mean, we had no interest in telling the same story again, just with, you know, with different characters. That seemed like we did it once and it worked out pretty well. And I don't think we were anxious to revisit exactly the same setup. And then what happened was, I would say about four or five years ago, because it's taken that long for us to sort of arrive here, we began seeing that on the front page of every newspaper um, and the top story on the news, there was always something about families being separated. Um, and uh, we became more and more aware of the fact that the stories that were out there had echoes of a story that we had told, except it had the advantage both the advantage and disadvantage, actually, of being real, which was we saw the situation that we burdened our kids with 25 years ago, the Salinger family, the fact that they were kids living on their own, that they're, they were dealing with the tragedy, that they were trying to figure out what family meant to them, they were trying to take the role of their parents for each other, that 
that was a story that was being played out in real life across the country, particularly in, in, in border states, that parents were being deported and their children were being left to take their place and to raise younger siblings. And all of a sudden, um, I think we thought to ourselves, well, that's a reason to tell the story again. And what we found, um, without in any way sort of besmirching the original series, is that this is a better idea for a show. Because what we found, even in doing the original, was that the premise of the show becomes more and more diffuse over the years. So, for example, when you're dealing with the death of a parent, it's very raw and it sort of overwhelms your life in the months following it and even the years following it. But when you're four or five years away from it, it's not primary in your life in exactly the same way as it was in the immediate aftermath. And so the premise of the original Party of Five moved on from the tragedy that defined the show originally. And I think what I've found in working with this material now is that um, it has the potential to change year to year, um, in part because of what's going on with our country and the fact that every six months there's sort of a new wrench that's thrown into the situation that the show could respond to, but that the premise of the show stays relevant, I think will stay relevant in subsequent seasons, Um, and it won't become more diffuse, it will just become more complicated in some ways. So that's a long answer, but I think it was once we saw that the things that we loved about the original show, the dilemmas of the original show were actually playing out in real life with real people in really um, challenging circumstances that we thought, okay, that's that's a reason to tell the show again. That's, that's, that's sort of life-affirming and family-affirming. It has a lot of the same things that the original had, but built around a premise that isn't imagined, that's just actual. Yeah, that's every day for a lot of people. Exactly, exactly. You know, in a larger sense, you know, the original aired on Fox Broadcast Network. I'm curious, why was Freeform, a younger skewing cable network owned by Disney, the right place to tell this story? Well, first of all, they were incredibly interested in it. So their interest, I mean, we we went around town and uh, we pitched to Fox, we pitched it to other networks, and there was interest other places, but Freeform... And this was Carrie Bird, right? And yes, exactly. Carrie, Carrie, you know, said yes in the room. Not that other people said yes in the room, but she said yes in the room in a way that, first of all, she really understood the original show. She understood the what we were going for. I think what none of us anticipated was that in years, you know, in the in the in the several years it's taken to arrive at this point. I think we thought the situation would resolve itself in some way. I mean, we pitched, I mean, it was really, it was before the election that we began to think about this. And once we began to work with Carrie, we kept saying, let's, you know, let's get going on it because the situation may resolve itself in some way that means that we're sort of writing 
after the fact. We're behind on it and we want it to still be relevant. I don't think any of us anticipated that we would find ourselves, you know, debuting the show right in the middle of this crisis. So I'd love to take credit for, um, you know, having captured sort of the zeitgeist. But the truth is it's just, you know, both fortuitous for us and hard for everyone else. I mean, I wish the situation, I wish we weren't finding ourselves in the situation that we're in in terms of, you know, this, this political climate. But nevertheless, I think the show has arrived at a time that it has something to say it has something very strong to say about about what's going on in this country right now in terms of immigrant and immigrant reform. Well, I think it's very interesting that in the three episodes we've seen, I'm pretty sure the name Trump is never mentioned once. Was that a rule that you guys set for yourselves? Yeah, uh, I mean, it's and 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 uh, we don't we don't mention the president or the administration throughout um, the season. I mean, I think our, our we'd, we'd like to reach everyone with the show because we think it has something to say regardless of where you are on the political spectrum. Obviously, we're on the side of families and families staying together seems very important to us. But there are people in the show who represent, and I think you probably saw that in an early episode, who represent... Um, uh, points of view about people who came to this country illegally and without documentation. It's not our intention to only show these people existing in a world that's completely supportive of their efforts to, you know, have their parents become citizens. It's we understand the controversy of it. We understand that um, lots of people have lots of points of view about this. But the one thing that sort of I would hope that crosses all strata is this idea that parents and children belong together. I mean, that seems, and if if we can show a family that you care about and show the consequences of that separation, the challenges that these, these kids are faced with, and by the way, the heartbreak to the parents as well. It's not a story that is only told from the kid's point of view, that there is value in showing people who may never have spent a lot of time actually or in their television viewing with a Latinx family that, you know, we want to invite them in and regardless of their political leanings and say, this is what a struggling family looks like. Well, you say sort of that the that the ideology of the show is we want families to be together. And so from my perspective, okay, yes, that seems like an obvious nonpartisan thing. But there are going to be many viewers who are going to feel that that's inherently political and that's inherently ideological. What do you tell people who are going to react with that perspective? I think that's true. And people can reject the show because they think it is a story that's too pro-immigrants to this country becoming citizens, that that path to citizenship, the show is, in, the show is inherently in, in, in favor of that because we show these people as we think deserving of being citizens of the country, hardworking, uh, law-abiding people with values that are the same as any good citizen of this country. I mean, we are not depicting the, uh, the, the rapists and drug users and murderers 
who our president have, has, has said are, are, are the people who are being sent over by Mexico. That's not the focus of the show. So it's true. People can reject it because it feels too left-leaning. I, I think, you know, I felt like my obligation was to tell a story about a family you care about and to give them circumstances that feel real, that aren't made up, that aren't fantastical, that are the kinds of questions um, and challenges that a family in this situation would be um, would be exposed to. And if, for example, you embrace the family, then maybe that's a path toward understanding the political situation from a different perspective. We'll talk a little bit about the uh, thought process that went into the composition of the writer's room. How many Latinx writers did you guys have? And did that require any different sort of outreach to find those voices? It's such a good question. And I will point to my own my own learning process in this, which is I've never written something that was so f- what I thought actually initially was so far from my own experience. I mean, I I understood the Salinger family um, even though when Chris and I wrote that show, we started that show with both sets of parents when we started to, you know, Chris lost his mother during that show. And uh, I had both of my parents, but I, I understood the story from the perspective of what would it be like to lose your parents. I mean, that that was the, I, I, I was in touch with the the, the kids' perspective on that show because I was young enough that I was closer in age to the kids that I was writing about than I was the dead parents. But when it came time to write this show, I think because I was so familiar with this char- with these characters and we can talk about the ways in which we kept in place characteristics of those characters um, so that there was an instant, as far as my own experience, like an instant familiarity with with the dyna- the intra-family dynamics of the show. But what I didn't realize until um, we really began to dig down into the Latinx elements of the family, like what does birth order mean to a Mexican-American family? What are the expectations that you would have of a son that you wouldn't have of a daughter? Um, what role does religion play in the family? Because they are a Catholic family and the mother's very observant. How, for example, do families without documentation, people who come to the country, how do they have businesses? Like, how are they able to drive cars? You know, like all of these questions about, like, how do people exist in this country without documentation and when it feels like they live in a climate where they could lose everything at a moment's notice. And that was not something uh, I could write without the help of people who were close to that experience. So what Chris and I did is um, we brought in Michal Zabidi to help us on the pilot because we thought we needed a voice that was different than ours and someone who had the experience of coming from, uh, you know, She's an American citizen, but but she has family from Costa Rica, and she was able to speak about what it felt like to be a girl in a family where the expectations were different simply by virtue of her gender. And when we began, when the when the show was picked up, and I was sort of tasked with creating a writer's room, I looked very specifically for people. They didn't need to be 
born outside the country, but they needed to have the everyone on staff brought something um, had the perspective of being an immigrant on some level. And their insights were, I have to say, uh, sort of surprising. They, they, they shocked me in some regards. We talked about the fact that after the election, one of the writers in our room got went out and became a dual citizen of the country that her parents were born in. And I said, why? I don't like. I don't understand. What, you're an American. You have a you know. You have a passport. You, you, you're you're not even a naturalized citizen. You were born in this country. Why would you do that? And she said, I don't feel safe. Like I feel like even though I'm completely here legitimately in this climate, it feels like it could all go away, that maybe people will begin to investigate how did my parents come over or my grandparents, and that that could all unravel for me. And that feeling of insecurity and of feeling, you know, that prejudice and bias against you was not, is not my experience. And I couldn't have done, I couldn't have done the show this season without being surrounded by people who had that perspective. And and I can point to, I think I could point to something in every single episode that was a result of a conversation that emerged from a writer's room where writers were talking about how does it feel to be Latinx. So our writers were, um, every writer, if, um, you know, they weren't all from Mexico, we had a writer who was half Puerto Rican. We have a Mexican-American writer. Um, we have a writer whose experience, she's from Colombia, Mary Molina, who came to the country and became a citizen, didn't come to the country until I think she was, she was, a, she was, she was 10 when she came, but had an experience, definitely an experience of living in a room with lots of relatives and sort of trying to find her way through the system until she became a citizen. So I didn't know how necessary it was until I was surrounded by these people who had stories and experiences that I didn't, didn't that completely enhanced the storytelling of the show. Well, let's talk about the casting process next. Um, what excited you about the pool of relatively unknown actors that you got to audition and kind of walk us through that process and how important it was to cast a lot of bilingual actors for these roles. First of all, I, you know, I credit our casting director um, who, who was tapped into this community and I didn't see one actor that I knew. I mean, really, we didn't look at one actor who was familiar to me. And that was fantastic because you're not looking at resumes. You're not saying, you know, you came off a Disney show and you come to us with, you know, a lot of, um, with, with already like a deep fan base. We were looking to discover actors. We did it on the original and that served us very well. Yeah, I was going to say, we all know how that came out. I mean, I think they're all that's right. working it, it, today. That's right. It worked out, it, it worked out really well. And what, what, how that advantages you is that it just helps you create a family instantly. You know, when one of the, I mean, and all of our actors have, have worked. I mean, they're not new to acting, but I don't think people will really, I don't think they're widely identifiable in different roles. And what it just helps you do is say, 
these people could be a family. And the truth is, they're incredibly diverse, even though they're all Latinx. I mean, Brandon, our oldest, is half Puerto Rican. Um, Emily's from the Dominican Republic. Nico is is Mexican American. Um, Elle has a Mexican grand grandfather. I mean, they are they are they're diverse within themselves. So the challenge is, how do you take people who are from all over? but make them seem like they're a family. So we did it the same way we did the original, which is you start with one and then you cast around them. You know, like once you find, in our case, the two actors that we found very early on, um, almost immediately were Brandon and Nico. And once you know that those are the right people for the roles, it sort of establishes the look of the family and, you know, the just sort of characteristics about the family. And then you sort of cast out from that. It was harder to find the other two roles just by virtue of, you know, you try and fall in love with every actor who walks in and you try and convince yourself they're the right person until the right person really walks in and then you need absolutely no convincing. So um, it was, it was, I would say it was not a, it was not a difficult process. I'd been through pilots where um, it was much harder, but it was really exciting because it was, it felt like discovering people you'd never seen before. And I will say that um, the experience of casting Brandon, uh, of casting Nico, rather, who was the first actor I saw, I was out of town for the, uh, the first few auditions and just saw actors on tape. But the first time I was in a room casting for this show, Nico was the first actor they brought in. And he read the scene in the pilot that is an echo of a scene that was in the original pilot. And that is there's a scene on the swings between the brother and sister where they talk about how are we going to move forward? Are we, are, will we survive it? Do we have the skills that will allow us to sort of stay an intact family? And the scene has so many echoes of the original scene and he did it so beautifully. And I have to say, just as an aside, it's not something he hasn't, I mean, he's heard me say it a million times, but he looks so much like my son um, and he's the same age as my son, that there was something about those 25 years collapsing in a single moment. Like suddenly no time had passed and I was back casting that pilot and hearing um, an actor um, say the same things. And it was, it, it was um, I just burst into tears. I actually asked him later how he felt about that. Like, did he think it was a good sign or a bad sign that the, you know, that the showrunner was sobbing when he auditioned? And I think he, I think he felt pretty good about himself. I think he thought that he'd, he'd done a, <laughs> that he'd done a good, that he'd done a good job. But it was, um, it was, you know, it's like, um, I just, just, you know, when you begin to kind of um, memorialize these moments that have a lot of meaning to you, I would say that was a huge one where suddenly I saw this could be a show again. And if you cast the right people, it has both resonance to the old show and it has like a new life. And it just in that when I saw him audition, I thought, I, you know, I think this could work. I think this could be a show. <laughs> well, following on that, I mean, you know, fans of the original show are going to be able to look at these characters and they're going to be able to go, okay, sure, Emilio is is Charlie, Beto is Bailey. When you were kind of charting this out, how much was that a shorthand that was useful to you in the pilot? And then how quickly did you want to get away from just echoing back to a series that you'd already done before? Well, it's a good question. 
I think that the success of the original show was built upon the characteristics we gave those characters. I think it, it sort of elevated the show above kind of standard family fare. And we thought, we thought so hard about it the first time through, and it served us so well that I think we thought there was no need to deviate from it. It made it familiar to an audience that knew the original. It made us as writers sort of feel comfortable revisiting the series. And it gives you a lot of mileage. So, you know, and I've said it before that when you you look at these characters and you turn expectations around so that the oldest is the least responsible and the youngest is the smartest and the boy is the girl and the girl is the boy, um, that, that those things, particularly when you put them in a, um, a Latinx family, those twists on expectations work not just for storytelling, but they create conflict in a traditional family. Because you'll remember, our parents aren't dead. You know, they continue to play a part in the series. So the fact that, for example, the girl really struggles with being maternal and taking on the responsibilities that she thinks her mother has sort of tacitly assigned her as being the oldest girl in the family. Well, that's really interesting. I mean, it's interesting beyond what we did in the original without parents to say, you know, step up, you know, take care of your little sister. We actually have those characters now who are not present in the United States, but certainly present to their children. And those expectations that they have for their kids when they're challenged by these kids emerging as individuals creates even more story. So it was sort of a twofold reason to do it. Our comfort with it, the fact that it worked well, that it drove storytelling 25 years ago, and the fact that it sort of plays against the expectations that a traditional Latinx family might have in terms of birth order. So it worked on both levels, we thought. Well, how much do you want fans of the original show to be watching kind of with an eye towards Easter eggs or similar equivalent characters or equivalent plot lines that they loved the first time around? I mean, I'll be honest, I, I love the original series. And when watching these first three episodes, it felt like I was revisiting it through these characters. So which it, it, you know, from a business point, it's like you're catering to a new audience and you're doing something to do something that could reach the parents who maybe grew up with the original. Well, I, I'm, I'm interested to hear you say that because I, I will say that going into it, there was a part of me that thought, wow, it'd be so great if we could tell some of the stories that we told in the original again, just even from the point of view of like an exhausted showrunner thinking like, what did we do? Is there anything we can use here? Like, do we have a script that we could just... And it turned out that we couldn't do that. I, I would have loved to have been able to do that and maybe the opportunities will present themselves as the series continues. Uh, I think there is enough in it that has an echo to the original. If you felt it, there is one episode... Um, that we tell this season where something happens to one of the kids that happened to one of the kids in the original first season. And, you know, I, I don't know how familiar an audience is with 
with the show after 25 years has elapsed. But I, I will say that for me, having written the show, and I was, you know, I was a few years older than Matthew Fox when I did the show the first time. So my perspective was, as I say, really in sync with the kids and the fear of losing your parents and how do I become an adult? It was before I had um, children or before I had my son. So the kids' perspective was my perspective. And I, I think it was the audience's perspective too. We aired after 90210. We, we were successful with like a young audience and then sort of grew into an older audience that found the show. But this time out, I think the people who watched the original will, like me, understand it from the perspective of the parents. And that's what's in it for them. Not necessarily, I mean, it's great if what they do is they want to hear a, a retelling of stories of the original family, but we are all 25 years older now. And if we, if kids watched it when they were in college, those people have families now. And the fear is not what happens when I lose my parent because most of us have lost our, uh, at least one of our parents by now. But the fear is what if something happens to my kids? And for me, that is the power of the show. It's not that the family stories themselves aren't interesting and compelling. And I, I you know, we'll welcome an old audience, we'll welcome a new audience, we'll welcome anyone who, who finds something in the show that's interesting to them. But I think for original fans of the show, we offer both the, the return to those original kids in a new circumstance, but also the perspective of, um, of parents, which many of us now are. Yeah. Um, you know, we'd be remiss if we're talking, sitting here talking about the original. But have you had any conversations with some of those original cast members, you know, Scott Wolf, Matthew Fox, Neff Campbell, about either what they thought of this new take or and or about being a part of it? Well, you know, that question that que first of all, uh, yes, I have uh, I have been in touch with some of them. And Scott, in particular, without any prompting from me, um, has been, you know, over the years, incredibly generous about what the show has meant to him and what his feelings are about the show. And he I'm embarrassed to say he reminded me of the 25th anniversary of the premiere of our show. He tweeted something about it. And I, I was I was truly embarrassed to look at that and say, really? Like, was it really? It was, oh, okay, it's today. And I, I, I'd love to know what they, they think about it. I sort of fantasize about getting the two casts together, particularly in some kind of dialogue about what has changed. And now I think everyone, everyone in the cast, all of those kids have families now. They all have children. And that seems like a very interesting conversation to have about what family meant to them going into the show and what it means looking back on the show. So I, I hope there'll be opportunities for some kind of dialogue between the two casts. Insofar as putting the cast, the old cast, the original cast into the show, I'm not quite sure how to do that. If I can crack it, I will, if they're willing, I, I might find a way. The problem for me is that I want their individual worlds, particularly the Acosta's world, to feel real. I mean, it feels like I have some kind of obligation for the show to be grounded in reality. And when you bring an actor back, 
And the only similarity is that they were, the only thing they have in common is they were both in a show that Chris and I created. It feels weird. It just feels like it has the, it, it, it might be like a, uh, something to do for the fans, but it, I just don't want it to hurt the story we're telling now, that it feels coincidental or that uh, someone who was one of five that was orphaned now relates in some way, you know, encounters a family that has been sort of virtually orphaned in some way. I just, I, I have to figure out a, a, if we're going to do it, it just has to happen in a really good way. I mean, I would almost rather the kids came back as actors, as as the actors they are, than as the characters they played originally, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes absolute sense. Well, as our as our last question, we always just like to to ask, what are you actually having the time to watch these days on TV? What are you enjoying watching? If, if like you ask the writers' room, um, they would roll their eyes because I would think the show that um, that the brilliant show that I saw this year was Fleabag, <laughs> and I'll tell you why. Actually, I, I mean, not just that it was like this fantastic journey and and a fabulous character. But there were so many lessons for television writers in her writing. She does something that I try and impress, that I try and do, that I try and impress on every writer who works on a show of mine, is that her stories are full of invention. And that if you tell a scene, you can, you can tell a story and tell it in scenes that do exactly what you think they're going to do. Or you can find a way to sort of subvert expectations. You add an element, you add an element to the scene that's sort of unexpected. And you can still tell the scene um, that you intended, but it, it, eleva- it just elevates it. It makes it unbelievably fascinating to watch. And I, you know, we would talk about, we talked endlessly about those, particularly season two, how, you know, scene by scene, how she is so brilliant at telling a story in a way that surprises you. So I have to say, I watched that second season so many times that my husband would come into the bedroom and say, didn't, I mean, didn't I see you, like, weren't you watching this like three days ago? Did you, <laughs> didn't, didn't you finish? And it's like, I finished and then I went back and I watched it over and over again. So, um, and someone on, on our staff just bought me the collected scripts, which is the gift of the season as far as I'm concerned. Those collected um, scripts from those two seasons is, is just, they're just brilliant. They're as brilliant to read as they are to watch. And I loved every, every second of that series. Well, Amy, thank you so much for for joining us. Uh, We always appreciate the time. Thank you so much. A pleasure. Thank you for being interested in the show. I really appreciate it. Number five. As usual, we wrap things up with the Critics' Corner. This week, the holiday lull is over and broadcast mid-season offerings unspool. Key new arrivals include Zoe's Extraordinary Playlist on NBC, the Party of Five update on Freeform, the final season of Schitt's Creek on Pop, and CBS's FBI spinoff, Most Wanted, from Dick Wolf. Dan, what you got? Well, you already heard our interview on this podcast with Party of Five co-creator Amy Lippman. And 
I like the few episodes of that that I've seen. It's a reboot with an actual purpose. And I think if you listen to our conversation with Amy, you have a sense of the things that were inspiring, the changes that they made in making this a new show, but still keeping kind of the DNA of the original to some degree. I think it's maybe a little old fashioned, but probably that's a good match with Freeform. I think that maybe several Freeform shows are or have done comparable things with a, maybe a little bit more edge, but I've only seen three episodes, so it's possible that there could be more edge coming. Uh, I was all in for it. I love the original Party of Five, and I really, really, really enjoyed the update. And there are a lot of broadcast things that I have yet to get to. One thing I have gotten to is Zoe's Extraordinary Playlist, which is really promising and has the potential to continue what has been a surprisingly good year for broadcast hour longs. Wait, wait, wait. Can you say that again? I just want to make sure that we have this right. You're saying broadcast TV is good? I am saying that after a couple of years in a row where no broadcast drama really got under my skin and did anything I liked. The fall had Stumptown, Emergence, and Evil, Evil, all of which have got season recordings from me and are shows that I enjoy on a weekly basis to varying degrees. And I wish that more people were watching all three of them because it would really upset me if there were actually a few good broadcast shows and I'm not even talking here about kind of niche broadcast shows. This isn't like Hannibal, where Hannibal was this ridiculous outlier that made no sense whatsoever on broadcast television and bless NBC for giving that show three seasons, but it made no sense on network television. Yeah, that's when broadcast was trying to be basic cable. And great that they did that, but Emergence, Evil, and Stumptown are all totally broadcast shows. They are not cable shows masquerading as broadcast. They are broadcast shows that should have wide audiences and maybe people just need to jump in on them. Um, And maybe they do with delayed viewing. They could. Well, who knows? And who knows if that even matters in terms of renewals. But Zoe's Extraordinary Playlist, it is a, a musical comedy. And Jane Levy, the star, has been wonderful in many things. This is such a great vehicle for her. It's just a great lead performance, a great star turn, and a bunch of very, very good supporting performances. Peter Gallagher, anytime Peter Gallagher gets to sing, I am there. It's a show with a big heart. It's maybe a little emotionally manipulative. Okay, fine. It's actually a lot emotionally manipulative, and maybe you're going to feel dirty with some of the manipulation that's going on, or maybe it'll start earning it more as it goes along. In any case, it's a promising show. People should check it out, and it's definitely one of those things where, you know, it could be like a sort of a pushing daisies where if people don't support it, it's going to be X number of people's favorite shows, and then it'll vanish after a season or two. So give it a look. Again, great performance by Jane Levy, promising show, and yeah, we're we're off to to an okay start for 2020, and we'll see where things go. Yeah, Zoe's, to me, felt, I watched the pilot, Dan, and it it felt like Glee meets Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. Okay, I would just say it feels like Eli Stone with a female lead. And since Eli Stone was not a show that lasted a long time, and yet some people really, really loved it, and you can be sure that probably Greg Berlanti is thinking of trying to do an Eli Stone reboot anytime anyone would let him, this is about as close as you're going to get. Yeah, give it a give it a look. And again, if you don't give these shows looks, you know, don't don't play by that. I'm waiting to see if they survive the first season game. That is that is how you lose shows, kids. You got to check things out, even if you're just watching them on Hulu. Trust me, the networks know how many people are watching things on Hulu. 
Got to check these shows out or else they're going to die. Got to encourage networks to, to take to, the risks. to take the risks because otherwise it's just going to be variations on FBI on CBS and things in Chicago on NBC. So, yeah, got to got to sample these things. Yeah, well, that feels like a good place to wrap things up. Thank you for listening to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. We'll be back next week live from Pasadena at the Television Critics Association's Winter Press Tour, where we will be joined by Tim Minear, the showrunner of Fox's 911 spinoff Lone Star, for a showrunner spotlight interview. Please note, we will not actually be live. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, please subscribe to us on all of your favorite podcasting platforms. If you like us, rate us. If you really like us, write a little review. It helps people feel like they're in a company of people who enjoy comparable things. If you say hi to us on Twitter, we are always happy to hear from you and to chat. And if you have questions for future mailbag segments, email us at tvstop5 at thr.com. That's tvstop5, the number five, at thr.com. Until next week, Leslie. Until next week, Dan. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.